Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. On this podcast, we talk a lot about the intersection of technology, media, and politics. We talk about the flow of information and how political elites, journalists, and citizens shape it. There is substantial contrast in how the pieces fit together in China, for instance, as opposed to the United States. And yet, there are parallels that one might not expect. A recent documentary film explored these issues in the context of a particularly compelling moment in time, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Directed by Nanfu Wang, In the Same Breath is a riveting account of how the pandemic unfolded, how governments tried desperately to control the message as it did, and the ways in which citizens in two very different cultures and systems reacted, even as they themselves participated in the shaping of the discourse on social media. To give you a sense of it, first we'll hear the trailer, followed by my discussion with Nanfu Wang, who both directed and produced the film. Each year in January... I return to my home in China. This was the last moment I can remember when life still felt normal. Then, in an instant, everything changed. Hospitals were overwhelmed. The official news report said that everything was under control. But people were dying on the streets. The risk remains low. There's very little threat here. The media was staging interviews with doctors and nurses. I started asking questions. How are we preparing for this? I was accused of causing hysteria and spreading rumors. I knew immediately something was wrong. We didn't know what to do. The moment you open your mouth, you conceivably could become a target. When the government is telling us where to look, they're also telling us where not to look. Hospitals are warning them not to talk to the media. It started out as a medical crisis. It has become a test of our form of government. This is the reflection of a broken system that was already in the verge of death. It's hard to picture how all of this might end. But I can clearly imagine how this could have begun differently. We have to be united to fight this. My name is Nanfu Wang, and I'm a documentary filmmaker. So Nanfu, please tell me, uh, what are you working on right now? What is your current project? Um, current project I just finished. So it's a six-episode um, docu-series for HBO. It's going to be um, premiering on June 20th called Mind Over Murder. It's a story happened in a small town, Nebraska, but looking at that story, to understand how malleable and fallible our memory is and um, 
to see what it takes to um, change people's minds when they have a certain, you know, subjective perception and memory that they believe um, is permanent, but sometimes aren't memory, but things that they were told um, and internalized. I will look forward to that one. I want to talk today a little bit about um, your last film in particular, um, In the Same Breath. And it's sort of meditation on the way that governments, authorities try to create realities and use the tools of the state and, of course, use propaganda. And I thought I might start by just asking you, for anyone who hasn't seen the film, in your words, what do you think it's about? I think In the Same Breath is a film about the pandemic that we all lived through, but looking at it through the lens of how government shaped information and how propaganda and censorship together formed a narrative that a lot of people took in and believed is what happened, but it contradicts to the reality that many other people lived through. So one of the things that is so powerful about it, of course, is that you were able to extract all of this footage uh, out of China, out of Wuhan at the time. Was that a sort of almost happy accident in, in that you were uh, kind of in touch with so many filmmakers uh, in, in the space? And I just it's incredible that you were able to sort of evade, you know, censorship. Um, there is no happy accident in filmmaking, I would say. Every single frame, every single shot that ended up being in the film that we um, were able to capture, it was a huge amount of effort by a lot of people, people who are behind the camera, people who worked trying to connect, trying to find the subject, um, a group of researchers, the field producers, and um, cinematographers, everybody, I think, took huge risks, both personal and political risk, to get what you saw, like eventually the result of the film, to be documented. So from the very beginning, when I realized that the outbreak was happening in Wuhan, and from there to the decision of making the film, the next steps was really trying to find whoever was in Wuhan that we could trust that who has the ability and the, you know, even just the access to get out to the world, to the city, because most of people are like under very strict lockdown um, at the time. So it took a long time to eventually get to from one cinematographer to another and another. Eventually, we had more than 10 cinematographers filming inside of Wuhan in different places, different institutions, different people's homes. It was a huge team of people. You have commented elsewhere on the fact that a documentary like this may not even be possible to make in the future or that it may be more difficult to make. Do you think that's the case? Do you think that you know, even just a couple of years later, it's it's hard to imagine getting this type of access in such a circumstance. So this was um, the fourth film I made. Uh, three of them are very focused in China. And my experience with filming in China was with each film, the censorship increased and it got harder and harder to film in China. And it's both because of the, you know, the 
the exposure of my previous films that made me became more of a target, but also because of the political environment was getting tighter and tighter in terms of the censorship. So for my first film, I could take up my camera on the street and point it at people in public, and it would take them a while to react, depending on how sensitive the things that I was filming. The second film, it would have been impossible to be in public for more than, I think, half an hour without drawing attention from the local police and some intervention from the authority. And with this film in the same breath, everything,、uh, of course, was filmed remotely, like with me here being here in the U.S. and people inside Wuhan filming、uh, under the lockdown. But even with that. I've noticed how strict the censorship was, and not only from the government level, from the authority, but also self censorship became much more increasingly severe than before. And this was the recent years of、um, governmental promotion of a sense of like hostility from foreign countries, foreign media, international community. The Chinese government had successfully built. An enemy, like everybody outside,、uh, is trying to sabotage the Chinese government. So anything negative, if it gets spread it outside of China, is、uh, defaming us, is、uh, hurting our image. So every citizen has a sense of responsibility, a sense of a patriotism, where they felt they needed to protect that image and they needed to be careful. To whom they are speaking to and what they are complaining about, and it's okay that they might internally, privately, among friends, complain about the situation. But it would be very different for them to be talking to the media. So the kind of censorship from both levels,、uh, especially with the government on、um, the pandemic on the outbreak, because in early 2020 and. I mean, throughout till today, I would say the Chinese government felt the whole world was looking at Wuhan, was looking at China, and wanting an answer, wanting to explore what exactly happened. It's ongoing, it's present, and it might hurt the narrative they built, which is a successful response in China to the outbreak. So the censorship is more strict because they do have to control the narrative. And、um, limit the access to whoever potentially would counter the official narrative. So making this film was much more challenging than anything else that I had made before, and、uh, that's the, one of the reasons that I feel in the future, if I were to make another film in China, is going to get increasingly more challenging for all of these reasons. So I do want to pause just for a moment on the idea of self censorship, or kind of how individuals internalize the interests of the state. One of the people I teach with has done some work looking at、um, the notion of positive energy、uh, in China and the extent to which、um, that is embraced as a, a kind of responsibility, and how that translates into the social media behavior of people. Um, so I'm kind of curious about that. I'm curious about、uh, the extent to which you've seen that change over the time that you've been producing films. Yeah, positive energy is a trendy word、uh, in China. I think, surely, I think maybe a year before the outbreak started, 
that it became heavily promoted by the authority is uh, uh, a term that everybody is aware of. It's been said 24 by 7 on the media and in education environment too. It kind of like encourages people to focus on the positivity, whether it's a societal, economic, or any kind of issues or personal. Um, so it worked because, you know, it's almost like self-help, that kind of a message to say uh, life is hard, like the situation is hard, the society has all sorts of problems, but let's focus on the positive side so we can improve. And um, and so a lot of people took on that message and um, really took it to heart. And they became also, I think, influencing other people, you know, among them. So whenever people are complaining, whether it's some personal issues or national issues, they, quickly there were people jumping out to say, well, let's just focus on the positive side. You know, like China has these issues, but which country doesn't? Look at America. Then often American, the society, especially in the past five years, is like used as the counter, almost like propaganda diced by the Chinese government, because always the, the issues here is getting exaggerated, is reported mostly focused on negativity. So the positive energy during the outbreak, and when I, during my encounters with the people, became more of an issue, because you barely could get people to tell you their real feelings, in a way, or During the making of In the Same Breath, met so many people who lost their family members to COVID. And a lot of them were not really because of a natural disaster, but because of the uh, hospital was overwhelmed, the government didn't respond. There was lack of help, all sorts of reasons that like nothing was their own control. But even to talk about how many hours they stood in the line to the hospital or how many phone calls they've made to the government, to different institutions, many people hesitant to share that stories because they felt uh, that was negative. Um, so that was a one aspect of it. And the other aspect, of course, is people who do voice their discontent, their complaint in public, especially in, on the media tend to get repercussion, tend to face punishment. And even if it's not like prison time, jail or fine, even if it's just a phone call from local neighborhood committee, which became this organization, like in on every, like the, the lowest level to control people during the pandemic, neighborhood committee or local police station, phone call to them, warning them, or question why they did that is enough to deter people from speaking up. One scene that sticks with me from the film was a woman who, you know, lost her husband. And, you know, kind of to your point about the experience that she'd had, probably had every right to be exceedingly angry about what had happened uh, in his case and the lack of support and the lack of uh, help from authorities. And yet you depict her kind of at the end, thankful to the state and thankful to leaders for the role of that they played essentially in helping China to confront 
uh, the COVID virus. And it's, it's kind of an unexpected moment, at least for an American viewer, to see a person, you know, who's clearly suffered so much internalize the events in perhaps quite the opposite way as perhaps people would have here. I think the specific case or how it represents itself, like she would thank the government, despite that the government might be just like the cause of her suffering, uh, I think would be surprising to a lot of people here. But the the phenomenon behind it, behind the surface story, which is somebody, you know, similarly to be acting against its own interest, own personal interest, is universal. And it can be seen here too. Uh, we've seen so many people here, immigrants uh, vote for policies that are against immigrants. Uh, women uh, vote, you know, like against the abortion rights. And we've seen a lot of issues where here people would act like perplexly in a way that that is against their own personal interest. And you question why it shouldn't be that way. And in the case in China, I think largely it's the power of propaganda, the power of brainwash, uh, in a way that the woman, the clinic owner, that she lived her whole life receiving the kind of education that tells her national interest is above personal interest. And uh, throughout the pandemic, she you know, watched the news, the media tells her that the government did the best that they could. Um, they did everything they could to help people. And so she was thankful to go to the government. A lot of people, even in, in another scene in the film where somebody, uh, a father whose son died of COVID and he received 600 yuan, which is less than a hundred dollars um, from the government. And he thanked the government. People didn't realize what kind of a rights they have they see the government almost like as their savior and any kind of a benefit that they quote unquote benefit that they received from the government, they don't see that as their rights and they don't see that that's the obligation of the government. They don't understand the relationship between the government and the governed. And so they feel appreciative. They feel thankful and that's overwhelmingly, I think, true with the majority of people in China. And here, you know, when when I was filming the American portion of the film and noticed how many people are against the uh, lockdown policy, the stay-at-home policy, and arguing for reopening during 2020, and a lot of people seem to be voting for the things that will hurt them in the end. And you question, why do people behave this way? And I think a lot of them were because of the ideology that um, they grew up or their education background or the kind of information that they were exposed to that essentially they formed an ideology that is so distorted that it might hurt themselves, but they weren't aware of it. And I do, I mean, I do want to kind of uh, focus in on the contrast because it's, it is a, almost a, a jarring contrast uh, between, on some level, some similar context in terms of the state fumbling forward, unable to really deal with the scale of the disaster as it unfolds, and yet the kind of situation in the U.S. with regard to the way the population reacts, of course, 
um, is very different. And, and the depiction that you have of protests in the street against lockdown, the uh, ardent desire to assert freedoms in the face of a government trying to force people to act in their common interest, it's, it's extraordinary. And you, you really do get this sense of you know, two extremes. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes when I look at, and I mean, I'm a Chinese citizen and I've lived in the U.S. for 10 years. And uh, it was oftentimes natural for me to draw um, comparisons with the two countries and the issues in two countries. And sometimes they, and they're complete, very different political systems. Sometimes the issues seem to be exactly the opposite, but the ultimate like cause behind it or what was driven the political interest of the leaders that like it drives what eventually like the results of the um, policy year is the same in a way, like there's more similarity than differences. In this case, I felt from the very early on, China made a mistake, which was uh, there was a lack of transparency and um, the government was trying to cover up the problem until it was no longer like in their control until that there is no any cover up could could uh, stop it from being known. So it it took a while. The they had known that the virus existed. They had known that the human to, the virus could transmit between human to human, but for a long time that wasn't what they told the public or told the world. And we all have experienced this in the U.S. as well, and. It's almost like it's then not only China and the U.S. and elsewhere in the world. Uh, we've noticed that government leaders, their instinct is to preserve the power, preserve its image, preserve its trust in a way by telling everyone it's okay. But little, I mean, I mean, they knew this. Once the trust is broken, it's actually even harder to make it up, to repair it. So that's why also I think we as a world and in the U.S. as well, uh, seeing conspiracy theories that rising more than ever. And it's because there is a lack of trust in the authority, lack of trust in the government. And that couldn't, we couldn't blame the people because the trust was broken in the first place. You do focus in the film, of course, on uh, the reaction of American officials. Um, it's not even discussed that much these days that people like Anthony Fauci deliberately created a false impression, particularly around masking and uh, other elements at early beginning of the pandemic. I don't want to say that there's a kind of equivalence between the reactions of the Chinese government and the American government, but there's something of an equivalence. There's a a very similar uh, reaction in terms of of, of leaders, people of authority, as you say, to preserve face um, or preserve their their power or their, their ability to kind of hold on to the reins. Is there anywhere in the world that you observed that you think did it right? What did it right? Dealt with COVID correctly or or more somehow honest and humane about it, uh, perhaps, than, than we had in this country or than we observed in China? I, absolutely. I think there are a lot of places that I think did better than those two places, which aren't uh, the extreme in a way like notoriously that how bad it has gone. Um, there are places where 
I mean, for different reasons that it worked better. Whether it's in Taiwan that the leaders acted really quickly and、um, had contained it、uh, from early on in New Zealand, other places as well. I mean, that had more transparency. That had more like early response reaction. Dealt with it like not in a way that whether the U.S. which had delayed and very contradicting、uh, messages from the higher up. Uh, or China is a very draconian、um, authoritarian style of control, which for a while in 2020 that it had boasted its success, but like now we're seeing、um, the situation got even worse in 2022、um, than it had ever been. So I do want to come to、uh, the lockdowns in in Shanghai and Beijing elsewhere、um, in this latest wave and what you've observed,、uh, perhaps. You know, in the last few months, about the Chinese reaction and what did the making of this film? I don't know. How do you look at that through the prism of of what you know, having having put this film together? What do you make of their response to Omicron? So, in the past several months, Shanghai was under stricter lockdown, more stricter than Wuhan in 2020, and the impact and damage on people、um, is. If I would say like not equally like, but or if not more so, but equally as in Wuhan,、um, it was like for more, over two months, people in Shanghai、um, were nowhere else in in the world had that strict lockdown、um, as in China. That literally they were locked in their apartment and could not get out, could not get. Shopping, even there was shortage of food, shortage of grocery, and there were cases of people literally like starved to death because they couldn't get access to food, and there was lack of、um, attention from the、uh, government and the you know different institutions, neighborhoods, community, things like that. There were a lot of anger. There were a lot of complaint. There were a lot of discontent from people, but that's not the That doesn't translate into action. So people do complain, and one of the most, I think, common attitude of people in China, after you know decades of living under a government that is so strong and powerful, and the kind of education that is training people into a conformist, that what they would say or do and deal with any of difficult situation is. The government is doing what they can, and we don't really have any other choice. Like it's almost like acceptance is、uh, most people's attitude. So that's the same thing we're seeing in Shanghai, despite the the complaints. But people still just、uh, carry it through. And recently,、um, about a week and a half ago, that the lockdown was lifted in quotation marks. Um, Semi lifted because people still have to go through very strict, you know, limitation and stri-、uh, restrictions in order to get out, and a lot of things are not recovered. And even though that the citywide announced that is lifting its lockdown, or、uh, more ironically, that there were official statements, you know, announcing that they never had a lockdown, that this wasn't a lockdown. But I still have a friends. Who, after a day of like being able to go out again, was put on you know locks on their 
uh, entrance and exits. But what I wanted to say is, like after two months of that, most people's what I know circle. I lived in Shanghai for four years, so a lot of、uh, friends in there. They again are thanking the government, thanking for a bag of food that they received during the lockdown, thanking for you know how tirelessly the government le-、uh, officials or the healthcare workers worked, and thankful for life is back to quote unquote normal again. So. It didn't seem like things are changing, or there is a sense of like awakening or awareness after all of this. I don't think that would happen.、Um, there is an, a collective action, a collective awareness that's happening. And if anything, I used to think when in January 2020 that that kind of awakening would happen in Wuhan, which I was hoping. But by February and March. You know that it wasn't happening. So right now, I'm actually pretty pessimistic, not knowing like where the hope for change actually would come from. And there is also, I think, a sense of pessimism in seeing how China eventually would resolve with the COVID policy because zero COVID policy, which is what is guiding the government's action and direction. It's not going to be realistic unless, like, it's a forever locked down and constantly, which has been happening for the past year or two,、um, from one city to another. It's just constantly everywhere in the country that is going through a lockdown. You end the film with a a kind of, I guess, meditation on what it means for China to be able to portray that it has dealt with COVID better. Uh, than the rest of the world, or that it has done better, perhaps than competitive systems of government like in the U.S. And it's almost a kind of you know warning or a, a sort of sense of foreboding about you know what that kind of victory means, right? The ability to kind of、uh, say we were able to、uh, to deal with this successfully, this complicated issue successfully, and in the war for you know systems of government and with democracies, kind of. Suffering from all those various、uh, backsliding and,、uh, in some cases, very、uh, self-inflicted wounds, you could imagine a future where a lot of people around the world say, "Oh, look at the the Chinese model; it's working."、Um, maybe in a a future where environmental crises are ravaging the earth, and you know we need more authoritarian and swift responses to these complicated issues that we face. Do you think that perhaps the last couple of months, the Shanghai response, perhaps has maybe shaken that a bit? Is it、uh, shown the weakness in that、uh, authoritarian approach? That that ultimately a kind of like information imbalance eventually bursts. I hope so. I hope the world seeing that because in 2020,、uh, I did have a concern because how. How positively the rest of the world responded to China and responded to the Chinese government's narrative, even just among here experts and scientists and、um, politicians all over the 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 world, you've seen how they praised、um, China, and that was probably my biggest fear than even the pandemic itself, because the pandemic eventually one day would end. Um, it, whether it's two years, three years, or four years, 
But if that's where the future, the direction of our future is going, then to me, that probably is the worst thing that could ever come out of this pandemic. And we have already, as a world, witnessed in the past, I think, few years of the rise of authoritarianism and the decline of democracy, like everywhere. I think a week ago,、um, Joe Biden revealed that when、uh, President Xi Jinping called him to congratulate that he、um, he、uh, got elected, and the thing that he said to him was. The future is authoritarianism, and democracy is not going to work because you don't have the time to respond to emergency. And it is true that authoritarianism tend to be more effective during emergency, during crisis, because democracy takes time to reach to the consensus, takes time to make decisions. So what you were saying, and it, it definitely is something that I would be very afraid to see. And I am hoping that. Seeing the long run and people really evaluating what cost of that quote unquote efficiency, what kind of、uh, is basically you are giving up your rights, and once you are used to giving up your rights at the crisis moment, it's not easily to gain it back. It's not easily to reverse it, and government could seize on that and make it not only just that. Uh, as a crisis response, but constant norm, and then I hope like the world could see that what it is the best for their own rights and interest. I want to just end up with maybe asking you to reflect a little bit on the role of technology and social media.、Um, clearly, that's you know my podcast is focused on tech policy, and I concern myself with that. And in a weird way, like social media, the internet is a kind of like character in in the same breath.、Um, But it's sort of a silent one,、uh, and you know you get a sense of some very similar behaviors in some way across obviously very different、uh, social media environment. As you kind of look back on it, you think about what you've learned. How do you kind of reflect on the differences or the similarities in the social media environment、uh, in China versus the U.S.? And is there anything that one could learn from the other?、Oh, that's a good question. It's also a hard question because you're looking at China, where the social media is heavily surveilled, heavily censored. Just like you know, any sensitive topic, not only that you can't even get across the sense, get bypass the censorship, it won't be posted. It would be censored. That it won't be able to be allowed to be posted. That's one situation. There are just like a programming of. Hundreds and hundreds of keywords issues, whether it's June Fourth, nineteen eighty-nine,、um, or Xinjiang, some kind of a sensitive topics where it will never get to be seen. And then there is another issue where it's like the emerging sensitive topics that things that weren't sensitive before, but suddenly became sensitive. So, for example,、um, the keywords of the outbreak, the you know pneumonia and virus, all of those. The common,、uh, you know, terms words became sensitive within a week or two after, like around the outbreak, get censored, or even, for example, in the same breath, the film's title would get censored a week after it's being posted, would get deleted. So we're looking at 
of social media platform in China, the whole network that is, I don't know the number of how many of like cyber police uh, monitoring in it. And we're looking at the US where it also has the other issue, which is the abundance of the information on all sorts of social media to the point where an ordinary citizen reading it could hardly detect what they whether they, what they read is a fact or not. Could harder to tell the source of the information to evaluate to assess um, the accuracy and the credibility of it. And it's not saying that that doesn't exist in China as well. I think it exists in on um, Chinese social media just as uh, as in the U.S. The disinformation, but. I would say people probably have less awareness of what they're reading is not uh, could it be fake, could it be manufactured in China than here. Although the common challenge is for both to detect what is true, what is not, what is facts, and what is credible. And I think that challenge exists for people both in China or here and elsewhere in the world. And I don't. No, and this is a question for you. What is the solution to that? And without like getting into the area of censorship, how do we go through the sea of information and to be able to have? I, I think sort of like some kind of uh, media education from from very young from childhood is essential. But what kind of tools people can be equipped to to do that? That that would be a question. Well, that's you know kind of what we uh, talk a little bit about uh, on this show, kind of every week on some level is is how to imagine developing policies and technologies and methods that perhaps can help us preserve democracy um, while at the same time having the benefit of tools for free expression. And it's not easy, and I suspect that. You know, I think one of the things that you meditate on the film that I think about a lot is there's a lot to do with social cohesion, has nothing to do with you know social media, uh, nothing to do with tech really, and nothing to do with um, even information on some level. That there's something, there's something broader, um, a more complex set of of circumstances at play, and understanding how tech and social media interact with those more complicated. Uh, social and political circumstances. I suspect we'll be working on that for decades as we try to sort this out. But I guess I kind of like you. I sort of, I, well, I don't want to uh, assume that you think this, but I do worry that time is short to kind of figure out how to deal with information abundance、mm-hmm. and make democracies work again to the benefit of their citizens before. We do face perhaps more substantial crises because I, I suspect that's what we've got ahead of us. Unfortunately, is just yeah, you know, more of these pandemics and more climate crises and more resource conflict and more war. Yeah,、um, like you, I, I just I, I don't know if if citizens are going to be willing to try to preserve their own freedoms in exchange for. Um, what they get back, you know, it's not hard to imagine a future where people look at the situation and say, "This democracy thing is morally repugnant. More people are dying and being hurt because of this form of governance than this form of governance, and so we want this form of governance."、Um, I, I could imagine that future. I don't know if we'll get there. We're not there now. I don't. I don't think. 
but that could be my bias. Yeah, I think like there are over uh, 200 like countries and national constitution in the world, and each of them claim to themselves as a democracy. So it's really like the term is so broad, like loosely, so loosely like used and claimed. So when we say like democracy is not working, or this is like not working, is it true democracy, or is just an illusion of democracy, or self-claimed democracy? That is a question. That is a huge question, certainly in this country, where arguably the democracy has been broken for some time. So, yeah. well, I I thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today, and I apologize if any of my questions are naive. I it's so hard. I think. You know, you are one of those rare people who's lived in both places and has a、um, really strong sense of of both and the media environment in both. And I, I know I learned so much from my students when we talk about these issues, and I, I learned a lot from your film、uh, and your films. And I thank you for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you. These are all great questions. Enjoyed talking to you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at Justin at TechPolicy.press or find us on Twitter at TechPolicyPress. Thanks to my co-founder Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.